when Tom Carvel, the man whose face launched a thousand ice cream franchises, died in 1990, I imagined his life story would be told just like in Citizen Kane. Legendary was Carvel, the greatest ice cream chain in the world. From humble beginnings in a broken-down truck selling melted ice cream, the Carvel Empire would soon hold dominion over 800 stores around the world, and added to its fortunes a pro golf course, a country club, a hotel, an empire upon an empire, a realm through which for 50 years flowed a never-melting stream of wealth and prosperity. Here in Hartsdale, New York, this week, was laid to rest the man who began it all, the captain of confectionery industry, Tom Carvel. Famed in America is the origin of Carvel's fortune, but his story did not begin here. Born Afanasios Carvalis in Kilometers, Greece, he came to the United States at age five, and as a young man held jobs that included Dudebaker test driver and Dixieland drummer. But it was ice cream that captured the young man's fancy. His first foray as ice cream man met an inauspicious beginning, however, when his ice cream truck would drive no further on Memorial Day weekend. The unseasonably hot sun threatening to melt a lifetime of profits. But like Paul on the road to Damascus, Tom Carvel saw a new way of living and sold the melted ice cream to hungry vacationers passing through Yonkers. Convinced this was the way of the future, Carvel and his brother created the unthinkable soft serve ice cream, and the parking lot where he broke down became the site of the first. Carvel store. Over time, Carvel also proved himself a marketing genius, expanding his reach beyond ice cream cones into cakes like Fudgy the Whale and Cookie Puss, asked for by name, eaten by millions. But all was not sweet in the land of Hug Me the Bear. Rumors swirled that Tom Carvel was more like Niccolo Machiavelli, demanding store owners buy only his products than raising prices sky-high. Any criticisms were met with store closings until its dominion grew smaller, overtaken by the likes of Baskin-Robbins and Dairy Queen. Buy one, get one free, not for Carvel, since his franchisees had to buy all their ice cream from him. This double-dipping led to numerous lawsuits and ate into the profits. And then there are tales of financial impropriety, plotting, and murder. Did the 84-year-old sugar daddy die of old age? Or was death helped along by the likes of his attorney, Robert Davis, and longtime secretary, Mildred Akitapane, jolted into action after they received word of their imminent firing, hundreds of millions of dollars can buy a lot of flying saucers, but it can also buy deadly misfortune. Yet, like the pharaohs, Tom Carvel has left his mark, the world a little less sweet. This is News of the Day. That's my friend Travis Stewart, also known as Travis D. Thank you, Trav. And indeed, Tom Carvel's rise was the quintessential American tale, but so was his fall. Now, those of you who lived up and down the East Coast, but especially in New York and New Jersey, 
and are of a certain age, remember Carvel ice cream shops as if there were one on every corner. Now where can you find one? As it turns out, at one point Carvel stores, like those who patronize them, largely ditched the cities for strip malls in the suburbs, leaving behind the glass front shops that had twirling cones on the roof. Now that was ice cream. And even today, those strip mall stores are pretty rare, since the Carvel business model moved from stores to supermarkets. You're more likely to find flying saucers in a shop right than in a space-age-looking Carvel shop of yore. And can I just weigh in on the revamped logo? It's hideous and has been around forever. As the kids say, do better. Does this mean Carvel ice cream is an epic failure, the way so many startup companies are now? The we work of ice cream? Not exactly. Comparing those two is like mixing rainbow sherbet with Rocky Road. However, you can't say Carvel successfully evolved with the times, as there are still plenty of, as Trav said, Baskin-Robbins and Dairy Queens. The very first Haagen-Dazs store celebrates its birthday every year with free ice cream and a DJ. Carvel's first store was torn down in 2008. So what caused this twist of fate? Was it an inability to change with the times? Bad luck? Or murder? I'm Heather Quinlan, and this is Cold Storage. It's October 20th, 1990, a Saturday. A mysterious phone call is made to the Carvel home, answered by a friend of the family. Hello? Get rid of all the prescription drugs in the house. I think you have the wrong number. All right, now, I don't know if this is ludicrous or terrifying, but I'm bringing in my friend and co-host, Paul Finnegan, to help me because I am a bit creeped out. Like Cervantes in Man of La Mancha, we're going to tell this story within a story. So, Paul, where the hell are we? We're in Carvel's offices in Yonkers, New York. That lady at the paper shredder, that's Mildred Arcadapane, his secretary. She's got the dart on him, but she's about to get canned and she knows it. She's shredding papers like someone about to lose control over a multi-million dollar foundation and trust fund, and do time in federal prison. Also, somewhere in the building is Robert Davis, Carvel's lawyer. He's looking at the same 10 to 20 as Mildred. Bob, get me those bank statements, for Christ's sakes! Robert and Mildred, two people Tom Carvel trusted way too much, were in charge of the Tom and Agnes Carvel Foundation, a charitable organization that they used the way the Carvels intended, like tuition for Mildred's nephew. They also sold shares of Carvel stock to favorite employees before the company was sold, making them all a ton of money. But this got Attorney General Bob Abrams on their case, and before you could say, sweetheart deal, he was charging them with fraud. Listen, you, I was Tom Carvel's secretary for 33 years. You try working for that cuckoo puss before judging me. Bob! I'm not here. Although we can see your shredding documents, we're not judging. We're podcasters. You're what? Heather, it's 1990. 
Why does this seem like a more innocent time? Speaking of which, let's go way back to a time before paper shredding and foundations and prescription drugs for the elderly and this phone. Back before Cookie Puss and Fudgy the Whale, even before the first Carvel store. And bam! It's 1934. Ow. This isn't Sherman and Peabody. Yeah, I know, but we don't have any funding yet. Hint. So, if I were writing a screenplay of Tom Carvel's beginnings, it might sound something like this. Exterior, Yonkers parking lot, day. It's a blazing hot afternoon as a young man steps out of his ice cream truck. He walks around and sees the flat tire that's forced him to pull over. Despairing, he takes off his cap and sits on the ground. Dear Lord, I dream of having my own business someday, but I can't go anywhere with that tire. What am I supposed to do? Trouble? Yes. My trailer broke down. Look. I'll help you bring your trailer over to my yard here, and you can hitch it up to my electricity. Okay, I'm being a bit disingenuous here, because one, if I were to write a screenplay of Tom Carvel's beginnings, it would never sound like this. And two, these are Tom Carvel's words, printed in a syndicated newspaper column from 1976 called Pathways. And according to Carvel, the savior in question turned out to be the owner of a pottery store who was named Pop Quinlan. No relation to me, as far as I know. Mostly because I don't think Pop Quinlan existed. Every hero has a great origin story. It's the stuff of Marvel and DC universes. Carvel was no different. He knew the value of a good myth. I mean, he came from Greece. Like Icarus, Carvel too was dangerously close to losing his livelihood because of the blazing sun. But in researching Tom Carvel, I found as many different versions of this story as there are flavors of his ice cream. Some have him moving to Westchester from New York City after suffering a nervous breakdown. Some have him moving there after a misdiagnosis of tuberculosis. Some have Pop Quinlan. Some just mention a nameless pottery store owner. Some have Carvel selling melted ice cream to throngs of overheated passers-by giving him the brilliant idea of creating the heretofore unknown soft-serve ice cream. Some just have him selling his inventory after he powered up his truck at the pottery shop. Here's my theory. Tom Carvel grew up learning the confectionery business from his father, Andreas. By his late 20s, he was selling ice cream from a truck he drove around Hartsdale, New York, a suburb of New York City. The Carvel family were also brilliant inventors, and thanks in very large part to Tom's brother Bruce, this refrigeration know-how was applied to their confectionery smarts, inventing one of the world's first soft-serve ice cream dispensers. These refrigerator dispensers were called Whipsidairs by Bruce, and he built them out of his warehouse in Hell's Kitchen. But it was Tom who brought them into the ice cream business. And soon Carvel rented the shop where he claimed he was once saved by Pop Quinlan and opened the first Carvel, or rather, as it was originally known, Dairy Freeze. So did some kind of calamity strike Tom Carvel's ice cream truck on Memorial Day weekend in 1934? I think it did. But I doubt people driving by saw a broken down truck and thought, you know, I could really go for some ice cream. But 
print the legend. And that was another part of Tom Carvel's genius. Why don't we try the 1980s next? Why the 80s? I was getting ready to kick back and listen to Inka Dinka Do. Well, we have to fill in another 15 minutes so this can be monetized. Tom Carvel would approve of that. As I do. And I've got something to show you. It's about Carvel's other genius you mentioned, marketing. So we've just landed in 1983. It's Syosset, Long Island, where there's an abundance of Carvels and also a kind of distant cousin to Carvel, if you will, a certain Crazy Eddie. It's true, you can't think of Tom Carvel without Crazy Eddie being far behind, and vice versa. Well, wouldn't you know, I just happen to have Gary Weiss right here, author of Retail Gangster, the insane real-life story of Crazy Eddie, which is available on Amazon, BNN, and your local bookstores. Gary, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Heather, my pleasure. Uh, Tom Carvel, gosh, you know, I remember him from so far back. My golly, oh boy. I even remember his original store in Hardstyle. I was just looking up the uh, history of Tom Carvel. Yeah, you really can't find one nowadays. No, I didn't even know he had a they had any stores left. I thought they all shut down, gosh. Were you a Carvel fan? Well, uh, I was a patron. I do remember the commercials. That's the main thing that I remember. Uh, but I also remember that Carvel, I think, pretty much had a lock on the market for frozen ice cream back then. I think that was pretty much it, if memory serves me right. In other words, if you wanted um, that type of soft serve stuff, you went to a Carvel. They didn't have all these competitors that you have now today. So uh, I wouldn't say he originated the concept, but if I recall correctly, he had a, a, a sort of a <clears throat> sort of a lock on the market back then. Yes, most definitely, and for a long time. And I think this is a good segue into Discount Electronics, which is something Crazy Eddie had a lock on. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us who or what was Crazy Eddie? Well, Crazy Eddie was an electronics chain back in the uh, 70s and 80s, and uh, it was founded by a fellow named uh, Eddie Antar. But what people remember most about Crazy Eddie nowadays are two things. Uh, first was the commercials. Uh, those were commercials that were all over the airways in the 1970s and through the, yeah, through the late to the end of the 1980s, two full decades. You had somebody screaming, "His prices are insane!" The somebody who did the screaming wasn't Eddie. It was um, a fellow named Jerry Carroll, who was the spokesman for Crazy Eddie, and that's what he's now remembered for more than anything. Were his obnoxious commercials. That, so that's one thing that he's remembered for. The other thing he's remembered for is that he his stores were uh, sort of the front for a huge scam, a huge accounting scam, all kinds of scams taking place. And Eddie, the original Eddie. Eddie Antar, he wound up going to prison for about uh, about seven, eight years. So it's a long, big crime story, as well as a story of uh, memorable commercials. Yeah, and keying off those commercials, I think these two men, and we didn't use the word brand then, but these two men and their brands are very much time-stamped. Before the 70s and 80s, you had your Madison Avenue Mad Men chic, and today the CEO look is roll out of bed and stagger into your conference room. So what was it about the 70s and 80s that you think was perfect for Crazy Eddie slash Jerry Carroll and Tom Carvel? 
Well, I'd say, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, you're coming off an area, as you point out, the sort of the conventional madman type of advertising, you know, very uh, uh, totally different, appealing at a, at a higher level to people. Well, maybe not a higher level, but not using sort of the old-fashioned, raucous, personal type pitch, pitching that Carvel and, and Eddie uh, engaged in. You know, what they did, you see, uh, was a throwback. It was a throwback to the to the old days, to the uh, sort of the turn of the century, um, snake oil salesman screaming at the customer, you know, pitchman trying to get the customer in uh, in the old days. And Lower East Side, they used to physically grab the customer and bring him in. It's that kind of mentality that he was a throwback to. And things were sort of like going back to that. I would say that Carvel and Eddie uh, both were, you know, they indicated, you know, they, they were sort of returned to the personal personal element, you know, having the CEO or having a personal spokesman, um, uh, you know, appeal personally to the customer, you know, he, you know, Tom Carvel was the CEO of, uh, of Carvel and he was, you know, he was Mr. Carvel. He was the actual Carvel. I think Eddie, it was a little different. You know, he employed a spokesman. Um, although I think a lot of people thought it was the real Eddie and are of crazy Eddie, but it was not. Um, it was. It was. I would say. Yeah, I would say it was just sort of the cycle in advertising going back to the really old days. And in a way, to a certain extent, you see it nowadays. I mean, you could, there's been kind of a return to that, at least with this guy, uh, Mike. Uh, what's his name? Mike Lindell of uh, the, the My Pillow. Yeah. Yeah. So you see it return there, you know, to a certain extent. But it's not going too much beyond Mike Lindell. I haven't seen any. I haven't seen very much. Uh, I haven't seen anybody gim- mimicking him, you know. I think largely because of his his association with certain political causes. I mean, that's the, I guess, that's another big difference between Carvel and Eddie, and 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 you know, a lot of C- you know, like Lindell is that you know they were not political at all. <laughs> There's no way Carvel or, or Eddie Antar would have ever tried to antagonize their, you know, half of their their. Uh, their clientele by taking political stances, whereas Matt Lindell is building on that his own, you know, political, uh, his own politics. And you bring up a good point about the snake oil salesman. I hadn't thought of that, but even though Eddie Antar and Tom Carvel, I mean, Tom Carvel was born around 1900, and Eddie Antar was late 1940s. So there was a generation and a half between them, but I think kind of the same old school back then mentality for attracting and that's why he picked Jerry Carroll especially because he was selling discount electronics and not Bose speakers and not that you necessarily want to say I look like Tom Carvel or I look like Jerry Carroll but they're not appealing to what you want to be the fantasy it's just like ah this guy looks like me he would shop here I'll shop here they're straight shooters they're not going to lie to you yeah, I mean Tom Carvel, you know, he had his this gravelly voice, this New York accent, and uh, I, I, I think that appealed to people. You know, back in the days when I would say the working class and uh, the middle class was maybe a little bit bigger in New York City certainly than it is today. It appealed a little bit more toward, uh, you know, toward uh, shall we say ordinary people back in the in the '60s and '70s when he was doing these these commercials. And of course, if you knew Tom, if you knew anything at all about Tom Carvel, you knew that he was an immigrant from Greece. And, you know, people associated with that, you know, that he was an immigrant. You know, it was a little different with Eddie. Eddie was a, the Eddie spokesman was, was, and of course, 
he was pushing the quality of his products. You know, hey, we got these great products. We got this. Uh, we got this. We got that. We got thinny thin. You know, I remember that distinctly. Whereas Eddie uh, was all screaming about low prices. You know, I don't believe Tom Carvel ever. I, well, maybe he did two for one specials, so he did do some pricing, price stuff. But with Eddie, it was a hundred percent pricing. You know, lowest prices, lowest prices, lowest prices. That was that was his big, his big shtick. Um, differentiated himself a bit from Carvel, but it was all basically the same thing. It was all, you know, look, it was just appealing to uh, sort of the lowest common denominator and people. You want low prices or Carvel, it's like, you know, his his whole gravelly voiced, uh, you know, I'm your uncle, I'll give you the best ice cream. <laughs> sort of different, but very common in, in that respect. With Retail Gangster, which is fascinating because it's this maze of grift upon grift and fraud upon fraud what goes into the mind of someone like that do they think they actually won't get caught well you know uh i i think that's you know that's a question that i'm asked a lot regarding uh eddie antar you know and i i think it really comes down to is that when you when you begin doing things a certain way you know um minor lies minor frauds become kind of a gateway drug to the major frauds and major lies you know if you're Cheating on your taxes is, of course, many many retailers did in the old days by you know by um, uh, you know taking only cash and not reporting all their all their profits. Um, in in his case, it kind of gateway drug to major fraud, uh, ripping off the insurance companies, uh, engaging in major tax fraud, and then when they went became public, engaging in securities fraud, committing a federal crime in a major way, and handling it clumsily so that you get caught. And he also had people who would willingly help him out, almost like this cult of personality. Sure, I mean, he had people helping him. Um, he roped in uh, very close associates and friends to help him. He had a network of people, uh, including, for instance, his cousin, into the business as the chief financial officer. You know, you needed to have a reliable individual working alongside you if you're going to commit major you know, financial crimes, um, which he did. Going back to what we were saying about immigrants, and Tom Carvel was a first-generation American. He came here as a little boy, and Eddie Antar's grandparents came from Syria, correct? Yes, that's right. And as you describe in the book, Jewish people from Syria culturally were not into assimilation. Therefore, someone of Eddie's generation who would have been Americanized at that point, on the one hand, wasn't. Is there something you think in the immigrant way of seeing the world, like an outsider, someone who has to fend for themselves just a couple generations away from peddling handkerchiefs like Eddie's grandfather, that led to what crazy Eddie became? Well, I, I think there's a great deal of similarities between uh, Greek immigrants and uh, Syrian Jewish immigrants, is that both uh, were very much into uh, retail. You know, um, you know, immigrant communities very frequently do go into retail, and by the t time you reach the second, third, fourth generations, they kind of drift from that, and uh, you see, uh, you know, parents trying to bring their children up to become doctors and lawyers and that, all that kind of thing. Um, with Greek immigrants. Um, uh, the little I know about the community, I'm not a big, big uh, expert certainly on the Greek community. The Greek, but of course, you know, to this day, of course, Greek, uh, you know, diners and so forth. And, you know, the Greek people, um, particularly immigrants and their children, uh, go into retail 
very much, you know, in, in Tom Carvel's case, selling ice cream, you know, selling food products, uh, selling, you know, opening Greek restaurants, opening diners. Uh, the Syrian Jewish community, people would go into into retail as well. And unlike uh, other uh, immigrant groups, uh, the uh, Syrian Jewish community would continue in, they brought up their children to go into retail and their gra- and their children's children. So Eddie, though the grandson of a Syrian immigrant, uh, he was still being prepared to open up his own store. You know, that was sort of the family tradition that the Antars had, that many Syrian Jewish people had. So therefore, uh, you know, what was the what was the hottest? And, and it wasn't, you know, there was a predisposition to electronics. It was any kind of of, uh, of retail. You know, his father was uh, involved in linens and garments, and so was his father's father's father coming in from Syria. But, but you know, uh, electronics was the big thing in the 60s, so they went, he went into electronics. So I would say the commonality between the Syrian Jews, between, uh, you know, the Antars and uh, Tom Carvel, uh, was just sort of this affinity, this cultural affinity and tradition of, of going into, into into retail and not bringing up your kids to you know, to be uh, professionals, which is what is the usual succession, uh, ethnic succession uh, taking place. So this may sound strange given that we've been talking about fraud, but to me in a lot of ways, the years before 9-11 seem like a more innocent time. I I don't want to say that, but I can't think of a better word. And I'm not talking about the crime and the sanitation strikes and the transit strikes and the Mike Quills and the John Lindsleys, or maybe I am a little bit, but you go to a Crazy Eddie's and you buy something $200 cash and even Carvel, like when I go to buy ice cream now, I use a debit card, mm. the old cash registers, family owned businesses, maybe even nostalgia that the little guy could get one over on Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question that uh, before 9/11, you know, certainly in the 1990s, you know, it was sort of the end of an era in New York, certainly in the, in the Northeast and in New York. Um, yeah, I think it was you can describe it correctly as sort of an end, an end of innocence, you know, and uh, uh, obviously uh, the cities, certainly just looking at New York City, uh, you know, the host of Carvel and of Eddie Antar, you know, the city has changed. Uh, it's changed demographically, you know. I would say the old working class neighborhoods uh, of New York were pretty much on the way out by the end of the 1990s. Now we're pretty, and, and now we're now we're gone really to a very large extent. I mean, try to find an Italian neighborhood, for instance, in New York City. Not quite as easy as it used to be. You have to go to certain parts of Staten Island nowadays because uh, you know the old Italian neighborhoods of uh, of New York City, uh, the old Irish neighborhoods of New York City. The old uh, non-Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods of New York City—they're um, pretty, pretty much, uh, pretty much gone. I, I, I would say, you know, uh, Bensonhurst, Diker Heights, uh, um, Queens—you know, the old Archie Bunker neighborhood of, uh, of Queens. Uh, it, it, New York City has changed demographically. Uh, and I think that's kind of, of what you're seeing here to a certain extent with, uh, you know, the appeal of Carvel in the 1990s was to a certain demographic, you know, just as it was with Crazy Eddie. You know, there was an appeal to a certain demographic. It was uh, middle class, lower middle class people, although Eddie tried to, you know, tried to spread the uh, appeal to younger people. And that was a big, uh, that was a success on his part. Carvel, might have been somewhat different, but it was an appeal to a demographic which doesn't 
really exist in quite the way it did in the old days. It's not like people have disappeared or anything. They're just sort of kind of scattered through through the, through the suburbs and so forth. It's 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 uh, that's what's really changed, I'd say, since the nineties. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he could open a discount electronic store in Greenwich Village, he wouldn't be able to pay the rent on that nowadays. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, you've had the, yeah gentrification. You you can't you can't you know New York City's just become a you know largely a you know a, a city to a large extent of uh, very wealthy people and not that well and sort of you know, the middle class is what's kind of vanished uh, or it, it's that the middle class isn't quite what it used to be. It was it was the dominant it was the dominant demographic in New York in the 1990s before 9/11. Um, and it isn't anymore, you know. So you're right; you can't afford, you know. If New York has become to a large extent unaffordable, no, you can't uh, open up a, di- a discount electronic store uh, in the middle, smack in the middle of Greenwich Village, um, you know, as you could have in 1970s when he opened up his store in Greenwich Village. Well, I have loved this trip down memory lane with you, Gary. And don't forget, Retail Gangster, available at bookstores and at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you so much for being on Cold Storage, Gary. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that brings this episode to a close. A great big thanks to our guest voices, Travis D., Mike Insetta, Catherine Christman, Don Ward-Lau, Adam McGovern, and Kenny Simic, and to our special guest, writer Gary Weiss. It's been a whale of an episode, and Paul, how about you tell us what's next on Cold Storage? Next on Cold Storage, how Tom Carvel transformed that former pottery studio into an ice cream shop, and then transformed the business world as we know it today. We'll find out why there would be no Kim Kardashian if there'd be no Tom Carvel. And what exactly is soft serve ice cream anyway? We ask the experts. So that's it for now. I'm Pop Quinlan. And I'm Paul Finnegan. And this has been episode one of Cold Storage. <laughs>